Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Wildlife for You podcast. I'm Daryl Radijek, and I'm here with my wildlife host, uh, longtime friend, pain in the royal butt, and all-around oddity, Steph. You know, um, so I've noticed every time you introduce me, things get a, a little more and more odd. Well, it sort of matches you, don't you think? A little odd? Okay, considering that you're the one driving around with a stuffed squirrel on your dashboard right now and labeling him as your co-pilot while you're, you know, gallivanting and driving across the country, odd may actually be a better label for you, my friend. I will have you know that squirrel is right now by my side, but come on, you're telling me you don't have a stuffed squirrel. Uh, you know, it pains me to admit that, yes, I have a stuffed squirrel that I did myself. It and looks terrible. Um, and I, I actually ended up posing her with a little plain size Jack Daniels bottle in her hand so that she kind of looks the part a little better. See, I think you just proved my point that you're the, you're the odd one of this pair. You truly are. Um, but yeah, I would say you're the baddier of the two of us. Uh, and I can't wholly agree to that, sir. But speaking of batty things, our topic tonight is on a great little oddity, one that has huge ecological value and is currently under a lot of pressure from an introduced exotic disease. And I'm talking about bats. Yes, wonderful topic for tonight. We'll be talking mostly about North American bats, but we will give you a couple of bits about bats in general. Oh, that seems kind of fun to say. Bits about bats. Yep, fun to say. <laughs> like I said, you are batty. <laughs> Moving on. So there's 44 species of bats in North America. And except for rodents, they actually have the most diverse family of any other order in mammalia or mammals. And in fact, did you know that they inhabit every single continent except Antarctica? Are you seriously asking me that? Or is that for our listeners? Uh, no, that was for them. Okay, okay. Well, we're learning so much more about bats in our current era than ever before, because studying bats in the wild hasn't been super easy. You know, like the use of mist nets, which are historically used for bird captures, that's even a relatively recent thing. So if we add to that other gaps filled by technology, like the ability to hear with ultrasonic detection or, you know, see with thermal imaging, we're really finally starting to learn more. Yeah, and add to that the size of some bats, it makes it really hard to follow what they're doing. So, for example, I don't know if you know this, but the Indiana bat is puny and weighs only about as much as three pennies. And so figuring out how in the world we're supposed to attach like tracking mechanisms to these little guys, man, that is a challenge for quite a long time. I have to say the way that you enunciated P uni, I was wondering if he was like small and smelly. <laughs> anyway, in other cases, we also have to worry about, you know, studies that disturb roosting because some species are really persnickety about being disturbed while they're roosting. And even like the slightest disturbance in their cave will actually spur them to just up and leave and, and find somewhere new, even if it means abandoning their pup. Um, and that's one of the reasons that cavers have to be super careful and knowledgeable about what they're doing and how their hobby can actually have an effect. Ah, so our next talking points are some juicy bits about 
bat's life history. And so some of our North American bats, they're dependent on pollen and nectar and also make long autumn and spring trips. They're, they're literally following the food instead of hibernating. Yeah. Um, and now that you're just showing off with bits about bats, most bats in the U.S. are insectivores, a highly prized trait, in my opinion. They bear only one pup per season and they hibernate over winter. Yeah. And let's see, when, when we're considering longevity, just think about this. The average lifespan for most North American bats is about five to 10 years. And during their lives, many bats roost in natural places like trees and rock crevices and caves. But there are plenty that figured out how to use man-made objects like buildings and overpasses. And of course, old mines. You always see the bats filtering out of those old mines. Um, so can I say something really quick about roosting in trees? It's, I'm, I'm just going to get my tangent out of the way right away. Who am I to stop you? <laughs> it's a good point. Um, so when I was just thinking about all the places that they roost, it reminded me of a situation about 10, 12 years ago. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was, was working on the Indiana bat, which you might know is an endangered species of bat. And typically when we're trying to figure out what's going on with these threatened and endangered species, we, we do this whole species analysis. And we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out the limiting factor. And so there has to be something going on within that animal's life that is really causing this pinch point for them to become threatened or endangered. And so, for example, like certain species of bat, it might be that they require a cave of a very specific temperature in order to hibernate. And if they cannot find that, that is literally what is causing their populations to decline. And so we're waiting anxiously for the Fish and Wildlife Service to declare, like, what is some of this critical habitat that these bats need? And next thing I know, they come out and they say, the critical habitat are trees, greater than five inches in diameter and have shaggy bark. <laughs> and when you think about that's like everywhere in North America. <laughs> so it's like, can you go back to the drawing board? Because you got to be a little, if that was the limiting factor, there's no reason they should be endangered. But that, that's one of those things that just goes to show figuring out what's going on with some of these species can be very, very difficult. But they're getting a much, much better handle on what is in, impacting these Indiana bats. Um, but that's that's my tangent for today. I think you'll be happy. I'll, I'll be all done. But just want to let you know, I do have some bat experience. Gotcha. So it is interesting, though. People have historically compared bats to flying rodents, but really it's not even a good comparison because other than body size and some minor appearance similarities, they're really nothing alike. You know, bats, they generally only have one offspring or pup a year, whereas rodents have lots of large litters like early and often. Um, and the difference is likely because of the difference in lifespan. You know, rodents have a short lifespan, whereas bats, like, you know, you just mentioned, Daryl, they have a long one comparatively. So a lot of times, you know, we see this in biology. Animals with a, a longer lifespan, they have a smaller number of offspring, while those with the, the short lifespan, they, like I just said, they have lots of offspring. They start breeding early, they breed often, and they just pop out the, the litters like, like nobody's business. So um, and it's sort of an adaptation to help a species persist. 
Uh, easy one. Think of rabbits. You know, they're a highly prized prey species for so many animals, and they have a relatively short lifespan, not including even if they become prey. So to keep the species prevalent on the landscape, they have to breed a lot and have lots of offspring, um, which even gives us, you know, a, a great cliche. It's why we say, wow, you know, that whatever it is breeds like a rabbit because they're literally one of the easiest examples. So can I quiz you on something that you just said? Well, you're not going to try to stump me on our selection and case selection, are you? Because I was trying not to speak biologinese there. <laughs> well, I'm not going to quiz you anymore because you just nailed it. But for our listeners, there's there's really tech, techie, nerdy terms that we use. And what Stephanie was describing with the rabbits is what we call our selection. It's where they pump out a lot of offspring. They don't really invest a, a ton of parental care. And so then the flip side of that is what we call K-selected animals. And it's things like, like Stephanie mentioned, a bat that has one pup or a bear or something that invests a lot of care. They, they spend literally years or multiple years kind of fostering and raising that animal. But that will be another episode. Um, so explain which is which. Um, no. I'm going to go in a different direction. Um, okay. Okay. So I guess it doesn't hurt to mention that it's estimated that bats have been around for a long time, something like 50 million years. Now that's, that's a pretty long time. Yeah, no kidding. So, and globally, you know, bats are absolutely crucial for insect control and as pollinators and seed dispersers, which helps. Absolutely. And believe it or not, there's over 1,300 species of bats in the world. And fortunately, here in North America, we could find bats pretty much in all 50 states. Yeah, the, the most diverse family of North American bats in terms of species is Vespertilionidae. You know, at least 32 species um, we have in this family. Like there's 300 species of this worldwide, but at least 32 species of this family occur in North, uh, North America. And Vespertilionidae, it includes most of those bats with which humans generally come into contact. Um, the, the typical Vespertilionid is small to medium-sized, brown in color. They're you know, insectivorous. They hibernate in winter. Um, so that's, it's most of the ones that we're familiar with. And the common big and little brown bats are typical representation for this family. Well, I'm so glad you're pronouncing Vespertilionidae because I was worried about getting tongue-tied with that. But <laughs> I'll give it a shot. Let, let's try a, a, a couple other words. D did you know North America is home to new world bats, which are called microchiroptera? And the giant old world bats, they're called megachiroptera which of course I know you love Steph. Oh, I mean, who doesn't love the megachiroptera are, are like, they're usually those, those frugivorous uh, bats and they are absolutely so stinking cute. Um, their common name is a flying fox and they have got to be, and I'm not kidding you, the cutest species on the planet, I swear. Um, even if they don't eat bugs, which I hate. I mean, that's what I love about our bats is they're insectivores, but um but we also, for the record, we also have bat species that like to eat arthropods like scorpions or centipedes and even arachnids. Well, that's an interesting little tidbit of Jeopardy knowledge. Um, and 
did you know the state that has the record for the most bat species is do you know Arizona Arizona Yes, Arizona, partly because it shares a border with Mexico, but they have 28 different species of bats. That's terribly cool. And and if we're talking about bats in general, um, the most common question that I get all the time is, so why do bats roost upside down? And I can tell you. Um, so they actually have special tendons that are in their feet that allow them to literally like do a, a latch and lock, and then they can relax the rest of their body because once they're they're, they're latched and they get locked in, um, it's, it's effortless for them. So hanging upside down literally is very effortless for these little guys. But one of the other benefits, obviously, is that it makes takeoff pretty easy from that position. And now that you mention it, many people may not know this, but there's some bats, like if they're on the ground, they can't take off. They, they need sometimes need a little help, and they, that's why some of the biologists will we'll put them on the side of a tree because they kind of drop to get airborne. And so if they're on the ground, they have a difficult time taking off. But let's get into some facts on some of our interesting North American species. So one of the most interesting bats I think we could talk about is the lesser long-nosed bat. And that little guy is absolutely crucial to the pollination of desert cacti species. Yep. And he has a tongue that is literally as long as his whole body, which he uses to lap up nectar and saguaro and, and agave cacti flowers. So the funny thing is you'll see pictures of these little guys and their body, their entire body looks just bright yellow. And it's not because they're yellow. It's because they are literally coated in pollen. Yeah. And their population at one point it got down to just about a thousand animals. Uh, this was in the late 1980s, around 1988. And then they were put on the endangered species list, which I was talking about earlier. It does wonderful things for recovering species. But through those major conservation efforts, especially because it was listed on the endangered species list, this bat now numbers more than 200,000, which means we're finally able to delist it. And it's a great success story in terms of conservation. Yep. Yep. And I, I do love that little lesser long nosed, especially like I said, when he's bright yellow with pollen, but, but I have to bring up the hoary bat, which is absolutely one of my favorite insectivores because he is also absolutely adorable. Um, it's a pretty large bat. He's got a wingspan of around 16 inches and he uses those great wings to fly up to 24 uh, miles in one night, picking off moths, beetles, and lots of other insects that I can't stand. Um, anyway, maybe we should probably mention that I'm a bit of an insectophobe. Yeah, that probably explains your love for dragonflies, praying mantises, and spiders. <laughs> mm. Uh, well, believe it or not, another nifty factoid about that hoary bat that you mentioned is that the males, pretty much most of them summer west of the Rockies, while the females summer east of the Rockies. Uh, that's a good premise there. I might need to try that. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So, but they are a pretty solitary bat. You know, they like to roost in foliage during the day and they only come in and out to do their, they come out at night to do their magic and kill off a bunch of those bugs. But, um, it does go without mention that they, again, they are terribly cute and they're called a hoary bat because of their fur color. They have this gray tipped fur that gives them this little grizzled look, um, kind of makes it look, I don't know, grumpy yet cute. It's really weird, but they are flat out adorable. I recommend a Google. 
I strongly encourage our listeners to look them up. Uh, all these bat species we're, we're talking about are really, really cool looking. So let's talk a little bit about a very important species, the little brown bat. It is a very common bat throughout the U.S. and Canada. Uh-huh. And these guys, talk about when you said P. uni, um, <laughs> these guys are absolutely tiny. They are super small little buggers with the body uh, about the size of an average human thumb, and they weigh anywhere from half to like a third of an ounce. So tiny. Yeah. And one of the reasons why we love the little brown bat so much, it's because they're incredible insectivores. And you can hear my doggies scratching in the background. That's that's me yelling at my dogs. Um, but but those little brown bats are incredible insectivores. They they literally can eat a thousand twelve hundred bugs, get a load of this per hour while they're out hunting. And that remember, that includes mosquitoes. Ah, <laughs> uh, see. I love these guys already. Um, other bits about the the little brown bat, they hibernate in winter um, and they can congregate in tens of thousands in, in numbers when they, they congregate to hibernate in these caves and old mine shafts. Yeah. And when you have a species that hibernates in these large colonies and you just know I'm going to do my, my Count Dracula voice, but that place where they hibernate it's welcome to my hibernacula. I love that word. So... Hibernacula. <laughs> okay, so I I always try to be professional when we talk here. And and when you said like hibernacula, a half a dozen podcasts or so, and I was I was struck with a total fit of the giggles. You know, I'm trying to hold it in, but it's kind of like it's kind of like when that kind of thing happens at church. The harder I tried to hold it in, like the worse it was getting. And the next thing I know, I had to talk and I couldn't because I'm crying like these silent <laughs> tears of laughter. Totally couldn't hold it together. And I'm sure when I was trying to explain it, it made no sense. But Well, that, that's why I had to do it. So I'm vernacular. Um, <laughs> did you know? All right. Little Browns. Little Browns. Focus, Daryl. Did, did you know? Those little brown bats, likely because of these giant hibernacula, <laughs> were one of the first to show white nose syndrome. And over one, this is sad, uh, over one million little browns have died as a result of white nose syndrome. Um, well, I may have known that, but I bet our listeners didn't. And I, I do want to hold off on talking about white nose syndrome for a few minutes though, if that's okay with you. Yeah, that's okay. We will definitely get back to that, but I know we can talk a lot about that topic, but let me, uh, let me bring up a species you mentioned before the flying foxes or the mega chiroptera, what we call old world bats. I will tell you, I remember actually seeing one of these guys when I was in Fiji, which is in the South Pacific. And I was I was sitting by a pool and this <laughs> you could feel the breeze from the wings like going above me. And I look and like, what the heck is that? And the thing flew into a palm tree nearby where I was sitting. And when it roosted, it hung upside down. The branch literally drooped from the, the weight of that thing. It was monstrous. Oh, yeah. And that's because they are huge, um, you know, likely because they don't rely on eating a billion tiny insects. But we do technically 
have one species of flying fox that's in the U.S. And it's one of the largest bats in the U.S., therefore. And it measures um, between seven and a half and nine and a half inches in length. And it weighs up to 1.3 pounds, having a wingspan of 42 inches. Well, I'm going to I'm going to get you on your technicality there, because technically the species it is a U.S. based flying fox, which is you mentioned the word before and I should have I should have snapped at you you mentioned it being frugivorous meaning they eat fruits um but the only reason why it's a u.s based flying fox is by politics and that's because the bat qualifies as a u.s species because he's found in the u.s territories of guam american samoa and the mariana islands Mm -hmm. well with that dracula voice of yours I need to also mention that there is a single enigmatic record of one of the three true vampire bats also in the U.S. That's the hairy-legged vampire bat. Um, And I'm referring to a solitary individual that was found in an abandoned railroad tunnel in Valverde County in 1967, which is around the the Big Bend area of Texas. So there you go, Dracula. Uh, I won't won't do my voice. (laughs) Vampire bats, just so you know, they used to be part of the American landscape. Uh, And the reason we know this is from the fossil record. And we have evidence of vampire bats dating all the way back from 5,000 to 30,000 years ago. And they mostly all lived, all live currently south of the U.S., which now makes sense because they are a tropical species. Yeah. Yeah. And just so we're on the same page, that that doesn't mean that this bat can turn into Dracula. Um, their food source, though, is blood, which is a dietary trait called hemato. <laughs> You're probably trying to say hemo that that word. <laughs> it's not okay so just for the record this is not a word that biologists have to say very often because this little bugger is like the only one hematophagy (laughs) no it's hematophagy um hematophagy hematophagy is (laughs) just notice that that latin root word with the hema and that's usually related to blood but i will let you off the hook that was a good I like the toe fadgy. I like I like that sounds like a disease <laughs> of the toes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, but like Dracula, there's a there's only they're the only mammals that feed solely on blood, which maybe may make them seem a little bit creepy to us, but they really aren't too creepy. No, they're not, even if I can't pronounce that word because they are that only mammal. But anyway, they are they are sort of like um like many insectivores that you know they have bats that is they have this like leaf-like protrusion that's on their nose which a lot of again our normal bats do too but with vampire bats though you know they land on the ground and they creep up on an animal on all fours and they use that leaf-like protrusion to actually sense heat so the closer the blood is to the surface of the skin the more the heat emanates from it so they follow their nose, take a nip at the skin, you know, right there. So, and their saliva, it's kind of like, you know, mosquito saliva. It has an anticoagulant property. So after they take a nip, well, they lap up the blood and then they carry on with their night. So I, I have to say they don't take enough blood to ever be a danger, but just like any other insect or animal bite, there is always, you know, the worry of scratching and infections. Yeah. And besides that anticoagulant, uh, they, it's kind of like an analgesic that's in there. You, you you sometimes don't even know that they have bitten you. 
So anyway, um, the, the littler bats, though, they, they don't drink blood. Like all other mammals, they drink milk. So when you have this little bat pup, they, they, what they'll do is they'll stay latched on to mom. So they're nursing uh, like all other mammals. Uh, and they'll stay latched on to mom even when she's out doing her nightly rounds. I, I have to also say that these guys can be so subtle with their bites that they like I said before, they go completely unnoticed or undetected, which is it's kind of interesting, actually. Yeah, I agree. So, okay. Um, so I know I'm bats, you know, bats are a huge and fun topic, actually. Um, but we do have a timer always going. So let's go ahead and transition to talk about white nose syndrome. Okay. Well, white nose syndrome, it's a bad thing. <laughs> The end. No, white nose syndrome. It's it's this fungal disease. <laughs> Shush. White nose syndrome is this fungal disease that is literally decimating our bat population. So it's not a laughing matter, Steph. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying maybe your commentary might be. But, okay. but anyway, anyway. So yeah, white nose white nose syndrome. It was first discovered in 2006 in New York, but. We believe that it actually arrived there from contaminated gear after someone went caving in Europe and then they brought the disease over because they didn't decontaminate or adequately clean their gear. And since then, it's literally it's been a rapid spread and it's still spreading. All right. I'm going to try to quiz you and catch you. Do you know what cavern it was first discovered in New York? Uh, no, I know. The only well, Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, no, I don't, but you're from New York. So this might be a little easier for you. The only reason I know this is because when I was a 10 year old boy, my parents took me to Howe Cavern, which is in upstate New York. Don't remember much of it, but I I remember having pictures from Howe Cavern. And then lo and behold, in 2006, when it was discovered in North America and they said, Howe Cavern, it's like, I've been there. So that's my aha moment. Um, but anyways, going back was, to, we actually ahead. didn't catalog it just for the record. We didn't catalog it till 2007. Um, but in, it, that they tracked it back to that, that cavern yes. that you were mentioning and realized that it was hitting there in 2006, but anyway, carry on. So, all right, let's dive into this white nose syndrome a little bit more. Um, and what this is, what this white nose syndrome is, it's a disease that affects hibernating bats and it's caused by this fungus. And it's right for this one. <laughs> yeah, better you than it's, me on this one. No, it's pseudogenoascus destructans. If you would see what that is spelled out like, you'd say, oh my gosh, you just made that up. But um, pseudogenoascus destructans. So what we biologists do is we call it PD for short. <laughs> Thank goodness. And so sometimes it looks like a white fuzz on the bat's face. Um, kind of like those those disco dancers from back in the 70s in the back room of Studio 54. Um, but if you cannot picture this, then picture um, picture this bat that looks like it has its wet nose dipped in a bowl of sugar. It, it's literally just this white poof around its nostrils. Anyway, uh, PD, this this fungus, it grows in cold, dark, and damp places. So obviously it likes caves and other places that make great hibernacles. Um, 
it attacks just you know, it attacks the bare skin of bats and so you'll see it on their wing when we were doing uh, some of the bat surveys you spread out their wing to see if any of that fungus is growing on it but what happens is while they're hibernating uh, it begins to damage the wing tissue and it starts depleting some of the precious fatty deposits and this causes the bats to wake up more frequently and they become active in the winter time which again, totally burns up the fat that they need in order to survive that hibernation. And so these bats with this white nose syndrome, they'll do strange things. Like they'll fly outside in the daytime in the middle of winter. Which is crazy because we all know in the middle of winter, there's not a whole lot of bug activity, but you know, they, they just got to do what they got to do. But so looking for things to, to combat white nose syndrome is absolutely crucial um like like you were mentioning before when i was trying not to giggle but you know when we got to the the part about the white nose bats excuse me about the white nose bats about the the little browns and and how many it's killed but it is literally white nose syndrome has killed millions of bats and in some areas like literally 90 to 100 percent of the bats that use a certain cave for example have died it's a huge concern um, interestingly, though, the, the, the Townsend, Virginia, big-eared bat, it seems absolutely oblivious to white-nose syndrome. The, you know, the fungus, it's been found in their caves, but, but these bats, they just don't seem to contract it. And it's, it's actually interesting because prior to the fungus's arrival in the United States, this fungus was actually unknown to science. After our bats started to get sick, that's when, when we started to look around globally to see if we could find other occurrences of this fungus. And then we found the fungus in Europe where bats seem to have a natural resistance, likely because they've adapted alongside the fungus. But our bats, quite a few of them, they haven't had that. You know, none of our bats have had exposure to it, but some of our bats seem to be um, holding up pretty well. Like, like I mentioned that the towns in Virginia, big ear bat, but lots of our bats, you know, they're not because they don't have any resistance and they're, they're very highly susceptible to this. And one thing to note here is that fungus, it doesn't need bats to survive. Uh, in fact, we have done studies in, in numerous caves in the West, and unfortunately, we're finding the fungus, but fortunately, we haven't found it on the bats yet. And so um, anyway, it, that, that fungus can survive for a long time in a cave or on gear. So for cavers to learn how to appropriately decontaminate their gear, uh, the, and this is so they're not personally promoting the spread of white nose syndrome. You can go to the whitenosesyndrome.org webpage and just check out the decamp decontamination link. It'll give all the instructions how to properly decontaminate your gear. Um, but actually, that resource, again, it's whitenosesyndrome.org. That resource has a lot of great information about white nose syndrome. Yep. And, you know, while it's not white nose syndrome, we probably shouldn't forget to mention rabies. Um, not so much that it's devastating bat populations, but rather it's a zoonosis of serious concern to humans, which we actually mentioned on our zoonotic diseases podcast. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, that podcast yet, I'd recommend going through our episode library and giving it a listen because bats play a pretty big role there too. And then we also have a lot of other threats to bats in addition to the new threat from white nose syndrome. 
Yep. Like we said, um, bats like to roost in trees and, and under bark and in snags, which are those those dead standing trees that are great habitats for so many things, but and in caves and old abandoned mines. So the more we take over forested land and take over the wildlands and close down caves and mines to help keep humans out, the more we affect the roosting areas for all these bats. Yeah. And luckily, like we said, we're all really just starting to learn about the ecological value of bats. So in cases like closing off old mines or other caves, we've started figuring out ways to deter humans from getting in, but still giving bats free access. And I'll give you an example. It's so many, so many caves on, on whether or not it's National Park Service, U.S. Forest Service land, public lands. Uh, we still want the bats to use the caves, but we want to keep people out. So they'll put grates or gates over it. And, and the bats can fly in and out, no problem. They still have a great place to roost. Man, and people can actually do other things to help with bat habitats. Bat houses are a great example. Um, that website that we mentioned also has great tips for, for building bat houses and for attracting bats. And the super cool thing is that the more bats that you have around, the less flying insects and other pests. So I am personally still working on how to build a, a super duper major bat house because I hate bugs. But anyway, um, I do have quite a few decent sized bats that live, live right here in my woods and I, I love them to death. I love watching them just zip around and fly through the air. It's really entertaining. But again, it's very satisfying because I, like most humans, can't stand bugs, especially mosquitoes and those other just annoying things. Yeah. And for anyone who lives in a rural area, even in an urban area, um, someone may find a bat living in their house. And I just want people to know there's, there's a lot of, they'll freak out. I, I can just picture John Candy, the, the great outdoors when they saw the bat and he got, he got dressed up in the, he had the full riot gear on to go in to <laughs> remove this, this tiny little bat. But that's how most people react when it's in their house. But there are a lot of humane ways to relocate those bats and keep them from re-entering the house. And so I'd recommend actually calling either your local wildlife agency to help um, instead of one of those wildlife disposal companies, because they, they can give you recommendations as to possibly removing that bat, obviously keeping the human safe, but also keeping the bat safe. But again, bats, they're so important to our world we really need a better option than simply killing them because they thought your house was a safe place to live. Agreed. And I, so I think that about wraps up our, our basic overview on bats. D. What do you think? Uh, I think we could go another three hours just covering the basics, but <laughs> I think we did a pretty good job at the first stab at these basics. But anyway, I, I hope people appreciated our quick little bat talk. And I'd like to remind our listeners to subscribe to our podcast, which is available on many platforms like Anchor, Spotify, Google Cast, Podbean. There's a whole, a whole bunch of other places. Uh, but also follow what we're up to on our website, which is wildlifeforyou.com, all spelled out, as well as Twitter and our favorite my favorite, because I'm on it all the time, which is Facebook. And so it's the Wildlife For You Facebook page. But this this was a tough topic. Bats are really, really cool. 
but they're also really complex. So besides the resource we already cited, Steph, do you have any other suggestions for our listeners? Actually, yes. Um, Batcon.org. That's B-A-T-C-O-N.org, which is short for Bat Conservation. They have a lot of great info and it's written for the general population, but they're a a global bat conservation group and a great organization that's actually working toward eliminating bat extinctions around the world. So, All right. I think this was pretty good stuff. So what I want to say to everyone is educate yourself, folks. We help where we can, but this is a great topic that reiterates how we need to educate ourselves using, and this is really important, using the right resources. And it's a great reminder that when it comes to wildlife, your knowledge is their existence. Till next time. All right.